Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. We're jumping into the next psalm in our series, Psalm 77, and we're looking at despair, uh, abandonment, distress, abandonment, and despair. Does God care? Does God care? We're in our series called Summer in the Psalms. And so I want to start by asking a question about the people around you. Uh, You've been sitting here long enough. You know roughly who's around you, even if you don't know their names. Maybe you gave them a fist bump. Maybe you shook their hand. You know the people sitting beside you, in front of you, or behind you. So I'm going to ask you a question about all those people. How many of you would think that somebody around you in the last few years has experienced some type of distress, abandonment, or despair. Of the people around you, how many of you think at least one person around me has experienced that maybe, probably, in the last few years? Okay, good. Same question about, the different question about the same people around you. How many of you would say somebody around me in some point in their life has been lonely? At some point in their life, they have been lonely. Maybe it was years ago, maybe it was recently. Even if you don't know their name, you would guess that somebody around you has been lonely at some point in their life. How many of you raise your hand and say that? Good. This message is for them, right? This message is for everybody else around you. Now, as I'm preaching to everybody else around you, if there's something in the message that you think applies to your life or that speaks to your heart, I hope you'll put it into practice. Um, But the truth is, all of us struggle with distress, abandonment, and despair. And so in the next few minutes, this message is really simple. I'll tell you what I plan to do. I'm going to give you two things that God wants you to know about distress, and then I'm going to give you two things that God wants you to do about your distress, abandonment, or despair. So two things God wants you to know, two things God wants you to do, and then we'll apply it in a very, very practical way. Typically at this point in the message, I have everybody stand and we read, uh, but the Holy Spirit put it on my heart this weekend for me just to pray Psalm 77 over you. And so if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, you're more than welcome. It won't be on the screen, uh, but if you would like to bow, I'd love to pray with you and for you the words of Psalm 77. Lord, we cry out to you for help. We cry out and ask that you would hear us. Lord, there are folks in this room who are in distress and they've been seeking you, they've been praying to you, but yet they've not yet been comforted. And Lord, they have requests that have not yet been fulfilled. Lord, it seems at times that the more we pray, the harder it gets and the weaker we get. Lord, I pray for those who are about to give up. Lord, would you keep their eyes, keep our eyes from from closing. Help us to, as we think about the former days and remember the former joys of life, I pray that we'll get very, very honest with you, that we'll be willing to pray words like this psalmist prayed. Will you reject us forever, God? Will you never show us your favor again? Has your unfailing love vanished forever? Has your promise failed for all time? Have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten to be merciful? Why are you so angry? Why do you seem so angry and withhold your compassion? Father, I pray that as we go through this message that we will do what the psalmist did and that we'll remember the deeds of the Lord. We'll remember your miracles of long ago, that we'll consider all of your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. For you, O Lord, are holy. We're not, but you are. There is nobody as great as our God, the God who performs miracles. Lord, you've redeemed us. 
Those who put their faith in you, you've saved us from hell. What else can you not save us from or save us through? Lord, as we think about the story of the Exodus and we remember in a few minutes what you did for your people thousands of years ago, I pray that we'll apply it to our own situation and know that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Lord, thank you for being our God. And as we go through this Psalm, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and dive in. The two things that God wants us to know. Number one, even godly people experience despair. Even godly people experience despair. In verses one and two, the psalmist, his name is Asaph. We don't probably know anybody by the name of Asaph, but Asaph, he writes this. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. Now, this text doesn't tell us what his anxiety was over, what caused the distress. It's possible that something outside, he was experiencing some, some trouble outside of himself. It's possible that he had anxiety. Uh, maybe he struggled with that regularly inside of himself. Maybe if Asaph were alive today, he would be diagnosed as clinically depressed. What I like about this Psalm is that it doesn't tell us why he was distressed, which allows us to apply it to our lives in any number of ways. So really this psalm can apply to all of us wherever we find ourselves on the scale. But we all experience distress and despair at some point in our lives. I'll tell you the story about a couple weeks ago, some distress that I went through, uh, some despair, if you wanna call it that. I was supposed to get out of Charleston, South Carolina to do a wedding for the Huffman family, longtime members of Bible Center. And uh, so I was gonna go out of town on Thursday. Sarah was gonna fly down and meet me there on Friday. We were gonna have three or four days in Charleston, South Carolina, doing the wedding for sure, but we had a couple days to ourselves. No kids. I was really, really looking forward to it. Sorry, kids. Um, So I was excited to head down to Charleston, South Carolina. Well, Wednesday, before I was to leave on Thursday, I decided to mow my grass. And typically when I mow my grass, I'll sneeze a little bit. You know, you get a little bit of grass, but nothing too bad. Well, instead of just mowing my grass, and this year, my initiative to keep up with my neighbors, I decided to reseed my lawn. Well, it only takes 40 pounds of grass seed to reseed my little lawn, but you know, 40 pounds is not enough. Anything I do, I wanna do it bigger and better than before. So I got 60 pounds, so I had 20 pounds left over. So Wednesday night, I put down the 40 pounds with the spreader, went to bed, started not feeling all that great, kind of sneezing a little bit, but I went to sleep and thought, well, in the morning, I'll feel better. Well, I wake up the next morning and I don't feel any better. Actually, I feel worse. And so I'm starting to, your nose is running uncontrollably. I go to the gym and tried to like do what they do at the gym and it was just getting gross after a while. Nobody wanted to touch the weights that I was touching. So I left early and I thought, well, I'll go home and get a shower. I was supposed to be at the preschool about 8.30, 9 o'clock to read to the preschool kids. I thought, I'll get a shower, I'll rest for a little bit and then I'll feel better. Well, I did the most logical thing between the gym and going to the preschool. I had 20 pounds of grass seed left over. And I can't go to Charleston, South Carolina without getting that other 20 pounds of grass seed down. After all, the dew's out the night before. And so instead of just spreading it with a spreader, I decided to take the last 20 pounds and spread it with my hands. I still don't, I'm not making the connection here, but I'm digging into the bag and I'm putting it down in little holes and places where there's grass. And man, I'm excited. I'm going to get some grass all the while. My nose continues to run and I'm sneezing and not feeling all that great. So I go in and take my shower and then I find out I have a fever. 
I can't be around preschool kids because that's also gross. So I texted the preschool teacher and Miss Anna Armstead and said, Miss Anna, I can't come and read to the preschool kids today. I'm sick. I'm just going to lay down and take a nap before I have to drive to Charleston, South Carolina. So I did that, lay down, get up, don't feel any better, right? Still just nose running, headache, but I've got to get down there Thursday night. So I get in the car and I have my trusty handkerchief. Those of you who know me know I almost always have a handkerchief because I sweat like crazy. I don't know why it's a curse, but I have a handkerchief and I'm sweating. And before I get to the first toll booth, I have soaked the first handkerchief. So I pull off after the first toll booth and get out another handkerchief. So now I've got two handkerchiefs. I've got one in the floor that's, you know, like laying there trying not to, anyway. And so I've got another handkerchief beside me. I soak it before I get to Beckley. So around Beckley, I pull off and I get out four more handkerchiefs because everybody needs six handkerchiefs when they're going away for three days. And... I soak the other four handkerchiefs by the time I get through Charlotte, North Carolina. They're soaked. This is nasty. I am sneezing. My nose is running. I feel terrible. I'm like, even so, come Lord Jesus, please. This is awful. So I did again the logical thing. In my suitcase, I had two white undershirts. So I grabbed the two white undershirts and I started pounding the two white undershirts. So, you know, just got to take care of this nose tissue. My eyes are swollen. I stop at a gas station in Hillsville, Virginia. And I get out and I walk in and I don't know much about medicine. You know, my wife's a nurse, but she's not with me yet. And I walk in and I was like, hey, do you have any Sudafed? And my, again, my eyes are swollen. My face is probably like purple at this point. I'm looking terrible and I'm asking for Sudafed. You know what she's thinking, right? <laughs> the lady behind the counter begins to lecture me about why I don't need Sudafed. And then I'm like looking at her and I'm like thinking about, you know, yes, I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian, so let's just be quiet. And I got some Dayquil. And I went back to the counter and she continued to tell me, she even told me what kind of food I needed to start eating so this wouldn't happen anymore. She's like, you need to start eating more food with spices and Asia food and Southeast Asia food. You need to eat other. And I, I just told her, I was really nice, but I said, ma'am, I think you missed your calling. I think you should be a nurse. I really just want to check out and I want to drive home. I want to get driving. So I paid for my Dayquil, got back in the car. By the time I get almost down to Charleston, South Carolina, I call Sarah. Honey, I'm dying. I don't feel good. She's like, it's the grass seed. Don't you get it? It's the grass seed. You had it all over your hands. And I was like, yeah, that's right. I was digging in the bag and I was wiping my eyes and I was doing all this. It's the grass seed. It took about 24, almost 48 hours. The swelling went down. I was able to do the wedding. Nobody asked me anyway. Uh, but that was some distress that I went through two weeks ago. Now, at the time, I thought that was terrible. But this week, meditating on some of the things that you guys are going through, it's nothing. It's nothing. You know that. Allergies, if, you, if only allergies could be the least of some of your problems. Some of you are going through marriage struggles this week that it's hanging by a thread and you don't know what you're going to do. Some of your children are such a burden on your heart. You just want them to come back to Jesus or to come to Jesus. And you came in here hoping to hear a word from the Lord because you are beat down. For others of you, it's finances. Just struggling. For it's your career. You've built your life on this career. You've got a few more years, and now you're not sure what's going to happen. Hey, maybe your career is done, and you've retired, and you heard about all the joy and all the life you were going to have after retirement, and, but it's not there. You almost are missing your, your... Whatever it is, the godliest people in the world experience despair, abandonment, discouragement, even depression. Hey, think about Job. Job, one of the godliest men who ever lived. Job wrote this in the middle of his agony. He said, my days come to an end without hope. My eye will never see anything good again. 
Moses, one of the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. He was a meek man, but he was one of the greatest leaders the, the world has ever seen. Listen to what Moses prayed to God as people were attacking him and griping and, and doubting God's direction. He said, how can I bear the troubles? How can I bear the burdens and disputes of these people any longer? Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, he asked God to take his life. Jonah was the first foreign missionary and he felt great despair when God didn't destroy Nineveh. And Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament writers, wrote a lar two large, beautiful books in the Bible. He's known as the weeping prophet. Even godly people experience despair. Number two, the second thing God wants you to know from Psalm 77 is God doesn't promise to relieve our pain on this side of the resurrection. God doesn't promise to relieve our pain on this side of the resurrection. Look with me at verse two. Verse two of Psalm 77, Asaph says, when I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I, what's the next word? Groaned. You think it would say rejoiced. You think it'd be like, and I got excited. No, he says, I remembered you and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. He goes to God for strength and instead he finds weakness. In summary, if you could summarize verses two through four, you could summarize them like this. Prayer didn't work. I prayed and it didn't work. I sought for God and he hid from me. It didn't work. Have you ever asked or wondered why God does that? Maybe you know some godly people in your life or maybe you love the Lord and you're trying to walk with him and you wonder, why am I going through what I'm going through? Like what purpose does it serve? That's a whole nother sermon. And obviously God and his sovereignty has multiple purposes, some that we may never figure out on this side of heaven. But when you think about what the Bible teaches about suffering, one thing we know is this, it always makes us stronger on the other side. Suffering always makes us more dependent on the Lord after we go through it. It, it almost like it shatters our illusions. We think that we're good, we think we're strong enough, and then we go through this and we're like, where is God? And it shatters our illusions of greatness. And then we humbly come back to the Lord in a way that's unique, maybe in a way that we haven't before. Think about the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is really struggling. And one thing I like about Paul is he's just blatantly honest. So Paul's struggling. If you read 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about a thorn in the flesh. Now, some say, what is the thorn in the flesh? Was it a physical problem? Was it an eye problem? It may have been any number of those things. But in this passage, the thorn in the flesh is very clearly, in context, it's people. There were people in the Corinthian church that were opposing him as an apostle of Christ, right? They wanted control of the church. They didn't want the apostle Paul to have influence. They were saying all sorts of things about him. It was a really rough time in Paul's life. And so in context, he prays for God to remove that suffering. Really, he's praying for God to remove those people. And notice what God does. Second Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse seven. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So those are two things God wants us to know about despair. Number one, even godly people experience it. Number two, God doesn't promise to remove our despair on this side of the resurrection. Will God one day remove our despair? Absolutely. But it's on the other side. It's either in heaven or when Jesus comes back, when we receive our new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. If somebody asks me, they say, do you believe in the prosperity gospel? Do you believe that if you believe in Jesus, God will take all your pain away? Well, let me ask you, do you believe if you believe in Jesus, God will take away all your pain? When somebody asks you that, you can say yes, if you let me determine the time. I do believe that if you believe in Jesus, God will take all your pain away. It's just not immediate. It's in the new heavens and the new earth with a resurrected body. Revelation says there's coming a day he's going to wipe every tear from our eye. It's just not on this side of the resurrection. So it's important that we know these things for several reasons. One, I don't want you to feel odd or for you to feel like you're the only person who's ever suffered. That's kind of what the devil does to us, right? He makes us feel as though like we're the only one who's ever gone through this. All the other people in church, man, they're so happy and smiling. Their lives are perfect. The truth is nobody's life is perfect. So knowing these two truths, one of, two other things this tru these truths do is they strengthen our theology. They give us a bigger view of God. Our view of God isn't determined on our, based on our circumstances. It's based on his character and what he's revealed about himself in his word. It also allows us to be better comforters instead of comforting somebody and saying, well, if you pray more, your problems would go away. Now it allows us to say, hey, you know what? I hope God takes your pain away. But even if he doesn't, I'm gonna be here for you. I love you. You're my brother and sister in Christ. We're gonna get through this together. Heaven's coming. Two great things God wants you to know. Now let's look at two things that God wants you to do. Two things that God wants you to do. Before we dive into this section, I wanna admit that Psalm 77 doesn't tell us everything that God wants you to do. So there's, you could take, we could like spend all day going through the entire Bible, looking at all the things that God wants us to do in our despair or to manage our despair. This isn't in your outline, but you can write this down. Uh, despair isn't a problem to solve, it's a tension to manage. Despair isn't a problem to solve, it's a tension to manage. Only the resurrection will ultimately solve our despair, right? but we can manage it. We can learn how to endure. The Bible calls it persevere. We can persevere. We can keep going through our distress and through our despair. So the Bible talks a lot about things like making sure you get enough rest. Psalm 77 doesn't do that. But if you're like me, I know I'm a whole lot more grumpy if I haven't had the rest that I need. And it's amazing. I can pray and I can sing and I can read my Bible. But if I go take a nap, wake up an hour later, all of a sudden, man, I'm how spiritual I feel. Uh, so rest is important. Um, eating the right foods, of course, is important. 
you know, just piling our, filling ourselves full of sugar and process. You, you know what that does. That's not this sermon, but there's a lot of things that aren't mentioned in Psalm 77. Going for a walk, getting a little sunshine, vitamin D. I want to encourage you to see your doctor if you've been discouraged and depressed in a, in, in a bad way for a long time. Go see your doctor. Go see your doctor. If you had a broken leg, you wouldn't hesitate, I hope, to go see your doctor. But why is it that if chemicals are off or we're just struggling, not really sure what's going on in our minds, why do we sometimes feel ashamed to go see a doctor? Don't feel ashamed. It's good, it's healthy, it's right. See a counselor. Counselors have a way. Counselors help me process life, help me process pain. You know, I've learned that if grandpa struggled with this and great-grandpa struggled with this and great-great-grandpa struggled with this, it's not out of the picture for me to struggle with this. And counselors kind of help you process through all of that. So I wanted to start this section to say there's a lot of things you can do for your despair. But in the next few minutes that we have left, I wanna talk about two things in Psalm 77 that God definitively tells us to do. He says, do these two things. Number one, get brutally honest with God in prayer. Get brutally honest with God in prayer. Psalm 77, verse five. Asaph writes, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night and my heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? The psalmist gets really open and honest with God in prayer. Now, Psalm 77 is what we call a psalm of lament. It teaches us how to, how to mourn, how to grieve our own sin, how to grieve our own broken condition, how to grieve our hurts, our, our habits, our hangups, our hopelessness. Psalm 77 teaches us what it looks like to be real and naked and vulnerable before God in prayer. Now, the world tells us that you shouldn't be vulnerable with anybody. There's something even about West Virginia culture, and I grew up here, and so I guess if you grow up here, you have the right to like poke at the culture. But I grew up here, there's something about us West Virginians, if you're from here, like we're taught to be individualistic. We can handle it. We can just suck it up. We can man up, right? We don't need help from anybody. There's this, I don't know where it comes from. Maybe some of it's justified because, you know, we stayed and others left year, hundreds of years ago. I'm not sure where it comes from, but it's in the water. It's in the DNA. So whatever it is that causes us to feel that way, even if it's just our own pride, God invites us to be vulnerable and open with him in prayer. And here's why. I think, and this is just me throwing out here, I can't see a soul, but it seems as though the soul almost has this release valve. Like the soul was made to, not for itself, not to turn in on itself, but the soul was made to, to give glory and honor to others primarily to God, which fits the story of the Bible. So the soul has this release valve, and if we're filled with enough distress, if we're filled with enough pain, and we just try to hold it all in, eventually it will find release somewhere. It will express itself somewhere. It always does. One of my counselors said once, the soul always gets what the soul needs. And so it will find rest 
if we, even if we don't find rest in God. The soul will find rest in gluttony. It'll find rest in drunkenness, in drugs, in shopping without money, with money we don't have. It'll find rest in pornography. It'll find rest in workaholism. Or it'll even find rest in suicide. The, the soul will find rest. That's the way it's made. And so in this passage, what God is inviting us to do, he is saying, let your soul find rest in me. Whatever you want to tell me, whatever you want to talk about, whatever pain you want to share, it is not too painful to talk to God about. Now that's, that blows our minds. Alexander McLaren said about this passage, he said, doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in his or our heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. Formulating vague conceptions is like cutting a channel. Here's this idea of our soul finding rest. It's like cutting a channel in the bog for the water to run. Now, here's a little bit of a warning. If you start praying this way, it is going to be messy. I would advise you not to start praying openly and blatantly honest in your prayer group or in your small group, in your community group. Probably not a good place to start. I mean, if they, you really trust them, I guess you could. Um, you, you might start with a couple close friends. You might start alone, just you and God. Maybe go for a walk in the woods. If you could say anything to God right now, knowing that he wouldn't strike you down, what would you say and what would you ask? You say, oh, Pastor Matt, I couldn't say those things because, man, if God found out about it, guess what? He's already found out about it. He already knows it's in your heart. And so the Psalms are teaching you, you might as well go ahead and pray it because he knows you're thinking it. And it suddenly it loses its power. And God's able to process truth into our souls when we get blatantly honest with him in prayer. When I was a kid, the denomination in the group of churches I grew up in, a little, little different, pretty strict, legalistic, we were taught that like at the end of a revival service, you would go and put a, put a stick in a campfire and that symbolized, that stick, you know, just symbolized. You were surrendering everything to God for the rest of your life. As I've gotten a little older, I don't mean to poke at those services, but as I got a little older, I, I realized, you know, surrender is a lot messier than that, Right? If, if you prayed out loud what God's telling you to pray out loud, you'd get kicked out of a campfire service. But God wants you to do it. Open your heart to him. Only there you'll find rest. Lastly, the second and last thing God wants you to do is remember everything God has done for you in the past. Remember everything God has done for you in the past. When we're in despair, we get amnesia. It's easy to forget God's power and blessing of the past. And so the writer of the Psalms invites us to look in the rearview mirror. He, the Old Testament is filled with this. He says, remember, in the Old Testament, they would set up monuments and stones. And, and they, when the kids would ask, what does that monument mean? The parents were supposed to then tell them the story about some great victory of the past. In the New Testament, God does that with the cross and communion. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Let's look at the final verses in Psalm 77 and watch what happens. It's verse 10, the psalmist writes, then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. He's talking about when God, 
used his mighty arm to save in the past. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. He's being very intentional here. He's fighting for his joy. He says, remember, four verbs, remember, remember, consider, meditate. This is, this is something we do on purpose. Verse 13, your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The neat thing about verse 13 is that verse 13 says God is holy. In this context, he doesn't mean morally pure. Although that's true, God is morally pure. In this context, he means God is above us. God is, God is not human. God is other than us. God, the Bible says, transcend, he's bigger than us. But verse 15 says, even though he's bigger than us, he still stoops to save us. He redeems his people. Now in verses 16 through 20, if you're taking notes, I had never seen this until this week, studying this text. Verses 16 through 20, he simply outlines the history of Israel in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, in like four or five verses. It's amazing. If you're new to church, you gotta read the book of Exodus. It's, it's, a, it's full of stories, true stories. Verse 16, he says, the water saw you, God, the water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. He's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. Exodus 14 and 15, you can read all about it. In one verse, he summarizes the great event of the Red Sea, the parting of the waters, walking on dry land. In verses 17 and 18, he talks about Mount Sinai. He says, the clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with your thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind and your lightning lit up the world. In verse 19, in one little small verse, he summarizes the crossing of the Jordan River, another occasion where God parted the waters. He says, your path led through the sea and then your way through the mighty waters, through your footprints, though your footprints were not seen. And lastly, in verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here's one thing to remember about the, thinking about the past. God doesn't give us memory just for nostalgia's sake, but God has designed memory for us to be able to apply to the present. So what Asaph did as he wrote this Psalm, he didn't think about all that God had done in the past and just say, boy, that was great. Because if you just do that, you're gonna get depressed. You're just gonna get depressed. Yesterday, Sarah and I were at a wedding down at the Valley Park in Putnam County and for a couple of the children of our members and, and I was, saw these kids running around and playing. They're like two and three years old. And I started watching these kids playing and remember when my own kids were that little, two and three years old. And I was like, oh my goodness, they're never gonna be that little again. And like you start thinking about that, it's really easy to get depressed really, really fast. You know, remember when you were too busy to play or whatever, like, wow. He's not just saying remember the past because if you just remember the past, you're gonna get depressed. But in context, he's saying remember the past so you can apply it to the present. Remember the past, what God has done for you, so you can apply it to the present. Eugene Peterson writes, he says, it becomes evident as we do this that memory is not just nostalgia. Memory is not an orientation to the past. It is vigorously present tense, 
selecting out of the storehouse of the past, retrieving and arranging images and insights, and then hammering them together for use in the present moment. Prayer is an act of memory. If we confine ourselves to one generational knowledge here, or even worse, to our own conversation experience knowledge, we are impoverished beyond reason. How do we apply a sermon like this? As we close, what is it that we can do to remember God's works in the past? Well, there's a number of different ways you can apply it. I'm gonna give you several, and you can apply them to your own life, figure out how this week you can remind yourself of God's goodness in the past. One, they all start with T, because I'm just a nerd like that. Thinking, right? This week you can just think about what God has done for you in the past. Maybe it's while you're driving down the road. Maybe it's while you're in the shower. What if every day for the next seven days you thought about one area where God has been good to you? Not the hundred areas where you don't think he's been good to you, but the one area where God has been good to you, thinking. We remind ourselves through thinking with an A, not just thinking, but thinking, our gratitude. Maybe it's sending somebody an email this week, writing somebody a note, picking up the phone and calling somebody and saying, hey, thank you for your impact. You were God's grace in my life. Maybe it's telling somebody, just telling somebody what God has done. Even start with your children or your grandchildren. Let me just tell you a story. You, you, people love stories. Tell them stories about how God has been good to you. Maybe it's a tradition that you start. It's a tradition. The Bible's filled with traditions. Traditions aren't always bad. As long as we know what they are, they're just traditions. We have a tradition at our house where, you know, there's that verse that talks about like praying in vanity. And sometimes I feel like when you pray before a meal, at least for me, you're probably not this way, but for me, I feel like it's so easy just to like pray a prayer before a meal and you say the same words, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, all that kind of stuff. You pray the same words. So, so we decided at our house, we're gonna kind of mix it up. So we don't always pray before a meal. You're like, pastor doesn't always pray before a meal. Well, there's no 11th commandment that thou shalt pray before every meal. We, we do this thing where we call it to the king and we'll take our cups and we'll just go, you know, hit our cups in the middle of the table and say to the king. And then we'll take four or five minutes and talk about how the king has been good to us and our family this week. So it's not a prayer, but it's a way to, to, to tradition that we do. We, we remember, some of you are doing it now, which I like. We we'll go out to eat. You're like, hey, to the king. I love it. Another way is to write it down. Here's the T, transcribing. Write it on a napkin. Keep a journal of the goodness of God. And then lastly, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. As Pastor Mike said a few weeks ago, even just the act of resting or going on vacation can remind you of the goodness of God. Going out this afternoon and having a steak, not the cheap steak, but you know, just splurging a little bit, you know, getting, the, getting the one that costs a dollar more, getting the nice steak will remind you of the goodness of God. A nice day like today can remind you of the goodness of God. Think about Jesus. You know, I don't know that Jesus ever quoted Psalm 77, but Jesus sure applied Psalm 77. Think about it with me for a minute. We've looked at these two things to think and these two things to do. Jesus did all four. Think about how he realized that even godly people suffer distress and despair. He's going, the night before he's crucified, he tells the Lord, he says, my soul is burdened to the point of death in the garden of Gethsemane. If Jesus suffered despair, we'll suffer despair. Then think about, he knew 
He recognized that suffering won't be removed always on this side of the resurrection. He asked his father to do that. In the garden, he said, he said, take this cup from me. Take this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus knew the two things that I'm asking you to know. But Jesus also did the two things I'm asking you to do. Remember when I said be blatantly honest with God? Remember what Jesus prayed on the cross just before he dies? He says, my God, my God. What, how, what else did he say? Why have you forsaken me? That's pretty honest. Jesus did what Psalm 77 is asking you to do. And then Jesus remembered the calling, the good calling of his father. Hebrews says that on the cross, Yes, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set us free, but Hebrews 10 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew he had a calling that came from eternity past, and it was to save your soul. And that calling kept him on the cross to fulfill the will of his Father. Remember, even godly people struggle with despair. Remember, despair won't always be removed on this side of heaven. But this week, get blatantly honest with God. Blatantly honest, I dare you. And then remember everything God has done for you in the past. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.